listen, try to find an open spot, move into it, have the people in the back move forward so there's more room in the back. Anyway, um, you know, I remember uh, Omer Ruff. Do you remember Omer Ruff? And he was told me one time that joke about uh, that, that, that a preacher was there on a snowy Sunday morning and no one showed up. Finally, a rancher showed up. And uh, the preacher was beside himself. He said, I don't know what to do. He said, I've never had this happen. Should we, should we just close the church? And the rancher said, well, you know, whether it's snowing or raining or a nice day, I'm out there feeding my cattle all the time. Doesn't matter if it's one or 100, I'm going to feed them. And the preacher goes, yeah, yeah, that's it. Well, you sit down and I'm going to preach. And he starts preaching away. And I mean, he's into the hour, hour and a half. He's going. He thinks this is great. Finally, he finishes up, goes over to the rancher and says, well, what do you think? And the rancher said, well, when I said that I feed them whether they're one or 100, I didn't mean I'd give them the whole wagon full. <laughs> so, well, you'll get the whole wagon full no matter what. Well, this evening, uh, I was uh, thinking of the expression, too much, too little, too late. And I remember the first time I heard that, I had to think that through. What in the world does that mean? So it's too much now because it, it's, it's too little for too late. It should have been done sooner. And I've entitled this section, Manasseh Repented Too Late. Now, repentance on one hand, is never too late. It's always good, and it's always right. But what I mean by that is, even though he did repent, he was still chastised. It didn't remove what was going to happen to Judah. Well, with that in mind, uh, I'll invite you to turn to your, in your Bibles, not to 2 Kings, but to 2 Chronicles chapter 33, verses 10 through 20. So Kings is going to cover all those verses in just two verses, except they are going to leave some very important things out. They're going to leave out the repentance of Manasseh. And it is, the question could be asked, well, a man who was so evil, this, is, this most likely is a, a fake repentance. And the truth of the matter is it's not. All right, so as we go on here, let me just do a little review, and then we'll pray and we'll go through these passages. So you remember Manasseh was Hezekiah's son, and he replaced him. Hezekiah was one of the best kings. Manasseh was one of the worst, and he did evil in the sight of the Lord. He rebuilt the high places, and the high places, again, are on hills over there in Israel, and this is where the pagans would put their false gods and idols, and that's where they would worship them. Well, when it says he rebuilt them, it's not just he rebuilt them, but they worshiped the Lord. He rebuilt them, and they worshiped the false gods. He built altars in the temple area. So how bad is that? I mean, now he's moved false gods into the temple area. He worshipped false gods and the occult. And when we say he worshipped false gods, one of the gods was the god of Melech, who, 
according to pagan worship, they would have to offer their children as a sacrifice. And it says that his children, his son, passed through the fire. Well, we, we know that the Lord certainly warned Manasseh, but he did not listen. He continued to seduce Judah. And finally, the Lord spoke through the prophets and said, that is it. You are more wicked than the kings of the pagan nations. And we're done. Israel, the northern kingdom, taken into Assyrian captivity. But now Judah, they will be wiped out and they will go into the hands of their enemy. Well, what's going to happen now? There is going to be repentance. But it's going to be too much, too little, too late. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, we thank you for the lessons that we learn in the Old Testament. We see that repentance is always right and good. We see that repentance, true repentance, ends up in our actions. But we also know that even though there is repentance, that does not mean that chastisement is always removed. So, Father, we just now ask you to give us wisdom as we look at the life of Manasseh and we'll thank you for it in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so here in 2 Chronicles chapter 33, let's go back to verse 10. And what we learned in 2 Kings was that Manasseh didn't pay attention to anything. Even when he heard about what the prophet said, that the hands of the enemy are going to take away Judah. Verse 33.10, it reiterates that. It says, The Lord spoke to Manasseh and his people, but they paid no attention. <clears throat> those are sad words, and those are sad words that actually can be said in any generation, that, that the attention wasn't paid. So as we look at this here, we're going to see God bringing in other chastisements. So there's the chastisement of Judah as a whole. So in about 100 years, they're going to go into Babylonian captivity. But there's going to be some kind of chastisement that comes immediately upon Manasseh because they paid no attention. Look, if you would, at verse 11 then. It says, Therefore the Lord brought the commanders of the army of the king of Assyria against them. And they captured Manasseh with hooks, bound him with bronze chains, and took him to Babylon. So here's the chastisement. So at this point, we see Assyria as the major power. We know that by the time Judah gets taken into captivity, Babylon is going to become the major power, but not now. So the Lord allows Assyria to come against Judah and capture Manasseh and take him away. And there's going to be some very interesting results out of that. So verses 10 and 11 of 2 Chronicles, even though we're studying 2 Kings, this isn't in 2 Kings. Verses 10 and 11 is Manasseh's chastisement. Verses 12 and 13 is his repentant heart. And just in case we doubted his repentant heart, verses 14 through 17 will be his repentant actions, which is always the discernment 
of whether it's true repentance or not, is it going to come out in their actions and deeds? And then finally, like it does with all the kings, verses 18 through 20 is going to talk about Manasseh's acts and then also his death. So here in verse 11, it says that the king of Assyria had come against him. Well, now let's just take a look at that quickly. So who was this king? Well, it's, it's most likely the king Ashurbanipal. And he most likely was the king of Assyria at this point. He was the grandson of Sennacherib or Sennacherib, however you want to pronounce it. Um, he, he was the grandson of him. And of course, they're also having their son become king and then the son of the son become king. And that's where we have this king here. And it is very common for the Lord to use these nations, even pagan nations, to bring about chastisement to his own people. Again, the question is, well, that sounds so bad. That sounds uh, unfair. Well, our God is a fair and righteous God. And as we see in Jeremiah, don't worry. These wicked pagan nations, they will get theirs. But he uses them as an instrument against his own people. Now, one author wrote that because possibly the other countries are trying to get together to resist Assyria. We, we see that all along. And perhaps uh, Manasseh was trying to once again ally with Egypt. And the Assyrians said, that's just not going to happen. And Perhaps even at this time, Babylon was resisting Assyria. And so all of these nations are resisting them, but not good enough. Well, let me read what is written here in this quote by the Expositor's Bible Commentary. I think a, a great commentary. The occasion on which the king of Assyria took Manasseh prisoner to Babylon may have arisen in the year 648 when Ashurbanipal finally overcame a revolt that had been led in that city for four years by his own brother. Egypt, under a new dynasty, the 26th, had taken this opportunity to escape the Assyrian yoke, and Manasseh may have been tempted to try the same thing. But because Judah lay closer to Assyria, or because it lacked Egypt's greater resources, this attempt failed, and Manasseh the king was taken captive. He himself was taken captive. Now, what about the fact that he was taken to Babylon? It seems a little strange, but it'll all come out in the wash, and Babylon will be the power uh, about the time that they invade Judah for real and destroy Jerusalem and take the Jews into captivity. So John MacArthur writes, between 652 and 648, Babylon rebelled against Assyria. The city of Babylon was defeated temporarily, but Assyria may have felt Manasseh supported Babylon's rebellion. So he was taken to trial in Babylon. So this is what's going on. And people may be looking at this from a human standpoint. How terrible, how terrible. And yet, divinely, it was the Lord's providential hand that this would happen. 
Now, I do want to point out something. <clears throat> Notice it says in verse 11 that not only did they come against him, but they captured him with hooks, bound him with bronze chains, and took him to Babylon. What are those hooks? Well, it's a little uncertain, a little ambiguous. <clears throat> the Hebrew word there is chahach, and it can mean hooks like a fish hook or or some type of hook like that, but it can also mean fetters or chains. So maybe in this context, that would have been a better translation to say chains or fetters. And by the way, you see the word chains there, but in many of our versions, it's in italics, which means it's not in the original, so it's supplied. Well, that would make sense. However, this may be possibly drawn from the actual practice of the wonderful Assyrians who have used these kinds of things, hooks and rings, and even through the lips of their captives. And, and so because we find out in archaeology many of their reliefs or uh, some of their, uh, their, their writings, we see that this was a practice at one point. So maybe this is very literal. I have no problem with it. I'm sure Manasseh did, though. All right, so now he is captured. This wicked king, the worst king of Judah, to which God said, that's it, you're done. Captivity is coming to the southern kingdom because of you, Manasseh. Uh, again, worse than all the other kings, bringing in the altars into the temple, the altars of these false gods, worshiping the god of Melech, giving his son passed through the fire. Also, uh, bringing in the occult and bringing all of that back in. And here he is taken into captivity. But look, verses 12 and 13, Manasseh repents and he has a repentant heart. Verse 12, when he was in distress, he entreated the Lord his God and humbled himself greatly before the God of his fathers. So as we look at it, it's, it is very interesting in the Hebrew. We, we do see some of the intense language. So he's in distress, but you can imagine how much distress. It's great distress. And it says he entreated the Lord. Now this is prayer. Uh, this Sunday we're going to talk about different types of prayer from the language of Paul in chapter 2 of, of 1 Timothy. But here we get to see a little bit in Hebrew. This is the Hebrew word chalah, and literally it means sick or diseased. Well, what does that mean? It means when he entreats the Lord, there is the sickness of the heart. He is crying out because of the great distress, and he's fervently praying to the Lord. Just quickly, just to look at this word in 2 Kings chapter, well, let's go to chapter 20, verse 1. That wasn't too long ago. In those days, Hezekiah became mortally ill. That's this word, sickness. And of course, he prayed to the Lord and was given 15 more years. And perhaps, finally, something got Manasseh's attention and he remembered what his father did who entreated the Lord. We even saw that poem that he wrote and perhaps 
he remembered this. Train up a child in the way that he should go, and when he is old, he will not depart from it. So maybe this truism is applied here. But it also means a sickness of heart or grief. Um, in Amos chapter 6, verse 6, it says, Who drink wine from sacrificial bowls while they anoint themselves with the finest of bowls, yet they have not grieved, that's the word, over the ruin of Joseph. So it, it means heart sick. And, and so he was heart sick and it came out in what I believe is genuine prayer. Even though he hasn't been very genuine or he's been genuinely wicked. And at this point, when we come to verse 13, by the way, verse 12, quickly, it says, before the God of his fathers. Now, there's no phrase wasted in the Bible. And it seems as if this inspired author put this to, to say, look, not just God of the help, but the God of the Jews who has helped them ever since he called them. And look at verse 12. Look at our God. Look at his God, who is our God. When he was in distress, verse 12, he entreated the Lord his God and humbled himself greatly before the God of his fathers. Verse 13, when he prayed to him, he was moved by his entreaty and heard his supplication and brought him again to Jerusalem to his kingdom. Then Manasseh knew that the Lord was God. Well, first of all, we see that the Lord is moved. And once again, we find what a merciful God we have to a penitent sinner of any sort and of any kind. And usually you'll hear, well, in the Old Testament, God was the evil God, but in the New Testament, Jesus is the merciful God. Well, that is not a very good biblical understanding of the person of God in the Trinity, and it's certainly not a good understanding of God's true attributes. And here is his attribute to the worst king of Judah, whose heart was repentant. He showed mercy. We see our Lord's mercy. And by the way, that's the same mercy that he shows to any penitent sinner who comes to Christ, trusting in Christ's death on the cross. And at that moment, the mercy and propitiation of, of God is applied to that sinner. By the way, we, we just saw previously in 1 Timothy, Paul being the foremost of sinners, and God showed mercy upon him. So does God forgive this, the foremost of sinners? You better believe he does, both in the Old Testament and in also the New Testament. Now, notice the prayer. We see in treaty, uh, God was moved by Manasseh's entreaty, and he, he was moved by that, um, moved to show mercy, and, and it also calls his supplication. Now, the word supplication, I think we hear it so much that it loses its uh, intensity. Supplication is when we pray to God because we have a need, a dire need, and we're looking to God to meet that need. And that's what Manasseh was doing. 
And when God was moved, God answered his prayer. He brought Manasseh back to Jerusalem, that holy city where the temple was, and he restored Manasseh's kingdom. Incredible. And then it says, then Manasseh knew that the Lord was God. Come on, Manasseh. You know, you should have known this. I mean, look at your father and what he did and the answers to prayer through Hezekiah and the great, you know, uh, reformations through Hezekiah. Well, he was a rebellious son, an unbeliever, and you might even take this as, and now he finally believed. But the question is, you know, usually when you see people and they do wicked, they get caught, and they get punishment, they get fines, or get thrown in prison, it is not uncommon to see them seek the Lord. And what we sometimes do, either right or wrong, we wonder if it's genuine. Now, the only way you can really tell if it's genuine is that they continue in it, not just when they're in trouble, but when they're not in trouble. We need to see fruit. So repentance, true repentance is discerned by one's actions. So repentance, and we'll talk a little bit, a bit about this in our application. Repentance really means a change of mind. But it's a change of mind that leads to a change of action. You know, and we hear it so many times, you know, you, know, you confess it to the Lord, uh, but the person is not changing. They keep doing it over and over. And, and the, the idea is we're judging their sincerity. Well, there's different degrees and different ways that we look at it. But, but here with Manasseh, we're saying, okay, you possibly could be doing this just to get away from the Assyrians. But that's not the case. Not only did he have a repentant heart, but verses 14 through 17 are going to show that he had repentant actions. The end of his life was good. So you know what we've been doing all along. We've been looking at these kings, and we've been looking at them. You know, were they good, good? Good, evil? Evil, evil? You know, how did they start out, and how did they end up? And there were only a few that were good, good. There were a couple that were evil, good, and Manasseh is now going to get to go into that category because he ends up good. And, and, and there really is a spiritual lesson in this that God can save anyone and get a hold of anyone's life. But let's look at his actions first of all. Verse 14, now after this, he built the outer wall of the city of David on the west side of Gihon in the valley, even to the entrance of the fish gate. <clears throat> and he encircled the offal with it and made it very high. Then he put army commanders in all the fortified cities of Judah. Now you might be saying, well, of course he did that. That doesn't show any spiritual prowess. You know, he doesn't want the Assyrians to come get him anymore. And that's possibly true, and it's probably wise. But we have seen some of the kings in the book of Kings who have 
ministered to the city of Jerusalem, fortified their walls, especially when those walls surround the temple so that the people who come to worship are protected. Uh, this is The temple is to be protected, and so the walls are. So these walls that he does here, uh, we don't know exactly what the condition was, but these are walls that do cover some of the area around the temple area. So let's kind of look at that. Uh, first of all, it says that he built the outer wall of the city of David on the west side of the Gihon. All right, so let's first of all look at Hezekiah's. We looked at this map here. You see the city of David. Then you see Solomon's expansion in the blue. Then you see Hezekiah's expansion in the red. And he may have even expanded it to the pink area. So uh, there's always this change in Jer the Jerusalem area and the city. And uh, uh, you, you kind of have to know what period of time. Well, here's, here's really uh, the primary area with the wall around the city and around the temple. And... Um, you, you see the temple area, it's there in the north, and it's in that s yellow square. And where he builds this is on the, the, the west side of the Kid uh, Gihon. That's the Gihon Spring. Now, we know a little bit about the Gihon Spring, okay? Because remember, Hezekiah took the Gihon Spring, took it into the city so that they won't ever lack water even when an enemy surrounds them. So that's there. But it says that this wall was on the west side of the Gihon, which would make it the east side of the wall. Let me show you. So that would be this right here. All right. That's the east side of the wall of the Gihon. But it goes all the way to the fish gate. So we're now covering not only the east, but we're covering the north. And perhaps, since his father did a lot of westward uh, fortification, he's now doing the fortification on the east and the north. Also, we have the idea of the opal. And you see that in red letters there. And what it says was that he encircled the opal with it and made it very high. Perhaps that was an area that um, needed some fortification. Well, what was the offal? Well, let's kind of look at our notes here. <clears throat> so you can imagine being over in Israel, I'm, I'm wanting in Jerusalem, I'm wanting to know exactly where this is. So the offal is part of the eastern hill that sits between the city of David and the temple. So that would be right there, and it's on the eastern side. And the word offal means a swell or a rise. In other words, you're going up, okay? In fact, you go up there, and then you, you hit the temple steps. The temple steps are important because when we go over to Jerusalem, you know, Jesus may have walked all over Jerusalem, but we're not exactly where, but we know that he at least set foot on the temple steps. And the offal leads to the temple steps. So I have some pictures here. All right, so you can see there the Dome of the Rock, and that's north. 
You go to the south, there's another mosque there, Al-Asa Mosque. And then you have the wall, the southern wall. And then that red area that's highlighted, that's the opal. And you can see there's a rise there. And to the very left of that is the steps to the temple. So this is this area that he fortified. And they're doing a lot of uh, archaeology there. And uh, they're finding some amazing things. But let's kind of zoom in because uh, I see the bird's eye, but I wonder what it looked like as we got closer. So here's some of the archaeology of the Ophel. And this, this is some of the wall structure that they're finding. Now, I personally don't know the date of some of these stones and walls. Uh, you know, I'd have to look into it. And, and if we go over there to Israel, you bet I'm going to. I'm going to ask more about that. Um, and we, 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 see, we see this rise there, okay? And the rise is going up to the temple steps. Now, you do see a wall behind this. That wall wasn't there originally. It's there now. Okay, so we get to the temple steps. There's the temple steps. So, so you can almost see the top of the offal there over by those uh, railings. Um, but here's the temple steps, and again... Uh, our, our, our uh, instructor from the University of the Holy Land said, we may not know exactly where he went all over Jerusalem, but he know, we know that he walked up these steps. These were the temple steps. And I want to show you something here. So there's the temple steps. But the temple steps are cut in half because in the Middle Ages, they put a wall up there, all right, for whatever reason, um, for whatever reason, probably fortification. But look, look, we'll zoom in. So, so there's like the half of that window and the half of an arch, uh, and they have this wall in there. So when you go there, you, you know, you look at the steps, and that's about all you do. You don't look at the wall to to say, well, gee, I can't picture it. Um, one other interesting thing here, which doesn't really have anything to do with our lesson, but. You know, it's right there. So if you're looking at this wall, you're on the steps, looking at this wall. If you look to the right, you're going to see some gates that are sealed. And these are called the Huldah gates. And so they would have come up into the temple. They would have gone through these. And, of course, the temple steps would have extended beyond that wall. So these were one of the gates of the old city leading into the temple compound. Uh, it was even in the Mishnah, so, so this is what it was called. Uh, the term is currently being used for the remains of two later sets of the gates. Um, this was built as part of the much-extended Herodian Temple Mount situated in Jerusalem's old city. Uh, both sets of gates were set in the southern wall of the temple compound and gave access to the Temple Mount uh, by these ramps and... They were both walled up in the Middle Ages. But anyway, that is the offal, the rise. And what's important about it is it goes to the temple steps and then into the temple area. And we believe that the Dome of the Rock is over where the Holy of Holies was. And that the Dome of the Rock quite possibly was the very rock that Abraham was going to sacrifice Isaac on. So, very possible. So that's why it's so important. 
I mean, that's the Holy of Holies there. But now, uh, under Muslim uh, occupation, the Dome of the Rock is supposedly where Mohammed ascended to heaven. So they're not giving up that spot. So it is a holy spot, perhaps the most holiest spot in the world, the most coveted spot in the world. All right, so let's, let's get back to Manasseh. So Manasseh built that wall, um, and perhaps it was to fortify the temple area. I don't know. That's speculation. But look what else that he does. He puts commanders in fortified cities of Judah. That's protection. But then verse 15, he also removed the foreign gods and the idol from the house of the Lord. That is true repentance. If he'd have been like most of the other kings, he'd have said, oh, I'm sorry, God, please help me. And as soon as God helps him, he's going back to worshiping the idols. He does not. He removes these foreign gods from the temple area. And the altars, the altars to uh, the temple, in, in the temple area, to the holy place, he set those up, he removes those as well. And of course, in the temple area, that is where the sacrifice is done. And we look at where the sacrifice is done as a picture of Christ um, when the sacrifice is made so that you may enter into the holy of holies through the sacrifice of Christ. No, Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no man comes to the Father but through me. And so he removes all of this. And in Jerusalem and threw these, these idols and such outside the city, destroyed them, threw them outside the city. That is true repentance. He says in verse 16, He set up the altar of the Lord. He set up the altar of the Lord. So now this altar of the Lord, uh, which was, I believe he's talking about on the outside where they did the sacrifices, the Jewish sacrifices, this, he, he established now the worship of Yahweh. Notice the Lord there in all caps. That means Yahweh in Hebrew. And he sacrificed peace offerings and thank offerings on it to the Lord. Now, what were those offerings? It's very interesting, very telling. So in Leviticus 7, we find out the peace offerings were voluntary sacrifices to give to God for several reasons, but one of the reasons was for deliverance. So he's thanking God for delivering him from Assyria and putting him back in Jerusalem and the restoration of the kingdom. He's doing it right. And of course, it says also thanks offering there as well. And then notice the last phrase. And he ordered Judah to serve the Lord God of Israel. He ordered them. He now has become the spiritual leader that was always intended for the king of God's people. For the king of Israel, it wasn't just to be the king. It was to be the spiritual leader. Not a priest, but a spiritual leader like who? Like David. And again, in the book of Kings, every king is compared to David. Well, 
it's at this point, I mean, he's, he's kind of elevated here. He's elevating himself. Verse 17, however, look at verse 17, a very interesting verse. Nevertheless, the people still sacrificed in the high places, although only to the Lord their God. All right, so this, this is a little bit of a conundrum. And the conundrum is <clears throat> when they moved in, all of these high places, and we're talking about mountaintops, more like rolling hills in Wyoming, like a butte. Everywhere there'd be a butte, there'd be a high place to a, a pagan god. So when Israel moved in, um, one of the things that they did was that's where they began to worship the Lord there. But then it didn't take very long before they started worshiping the false gods. And that's what God said in Deuteronomy. In fact, if you, if you would, uh, turn with me to Deuteronomy chapter 12, verses 13 and 14. And there in Deuteronomy 12, God already says, look, do not worship on the high places even if you worship me on the high places. But if you remember, this was actually going on um, at the time of David into Solomon. People were still worshiping there, even though we, we find the temple was made. Of course, that's one of the hopes of the temple was that they would come and worship at the temple. Deuteronomy 12, verse 13 says, Be careful that you do not offer your burnt offerings in every cultic place you see. Verse 14, But in the place which the Lord chooses in one of your tribes, therefore you shall offer your burnt offerings, and there you shall do all that I command you. Don't do it on these hills. So when they're referencing high places in the book of Kings, I think the majority of time... He's saying they're worshiping false gods there. But there are times when they're not worshiping false gods. They're worshiping the Lord, but it's still not 100% correct. So uh, it says a half a century of paganism could not be countered or counteracted by a half a dozen years of reform. It is true that Judah presented the offerings only to the Lord their God, but this was still contrary to Moses' law for a central sanctuary. And again, in practice, moreover, it meant little more than applying a new name to the old Baal worship with all its debased rites. So these places were an abomination to the Lord, and they were still doing it. Point being... Manasseh is now being a spiritual leader, but he has had a lot of evil influence in their lives. And so they're, they're not ready to give up. So in his influence, it wasn't enough to cause them to worship only at the temple. So we see then, began good, I'm sorry, began evil, right? Just checking, just checking began evil, but he ends up good. And the end of his life is found in two verses in 2 Kings, chapter 21, verses 17 and 18. But I'd rather look at 
the three verses in Second Chronicles because there is something that's said there. So in, in, we're still in Second Chronicles, verse 18, and here is the familiar ending phrase for these kings. Now the rest of the acts. So this is the concluding remark. So the rest of the acts of Manasseh, even his prayer to God and the words of the seers who spoke to him, in the name of the Lord of Israel, behold, they are among the records of the kings of Israel. Now, in, in Kings, all it talks about, now the rest of the acts of Manasseh and all that he did and his sin, which he committed. So it doesn't really mention his prayer and his humility. Perhaps because in Chronicles it was already there, no need to do it. But anyway, it, it is not recorded. Now again... One of the things that we've learned, notice where it says they are among the records of the kings of Israel. This is not the biblical book of kings. And then when sometimes the kings, it tells you to look at the chronicles of the kings. This is not the book of chronicles. These are courtroom legal and historical documents. And the reason that we know that is because on many occasions, we find out there is no record in the book of Chronicles about this particular thing. And sometimes we find out that there is no record in the book of Kings about some of these details that are recorded in Chronicles. So um, almost every good commentary, including John MacArthur, will say, look, the, this, this is documents. In fact, even some of the names, uh, when it says the rest of the acts are written in, it becomes very clear that it's talking about a courtroom um, document. Now, I know that sometimes both Kings and Chronicles are both written. Sometimes details are in Kings, and sometimes more details are in Chronicles. But as we've seen, this phrase here most likely does not refer to the other biblical book because we found so many times nothing was written in there. Now... Look at verse 19. His prayer also. So not just his sins and his acts, but his prayer also. So written in those courtroom documents there in Jerusalem was the fact that he prayed and humbled himself. It says his prayer also and how God was entreated by him and all his sin, his unfaithfulness, and the sites on which he built high places and erected the asherim and the carved images before he humbled himself. Behold, they are written in the records of Hazai. So here it mentions his humility, and I'm glad it does. I'm glad even though we're studying the book of Kings, we could turn to Chronicles and read that. By the way, what does it mean? Uh, recorded by the Hazai. Well, Hazai means the keeper of the records. So he's a recorder. And this kind of just gives more um, credibility to the fact that we're not talking about the book of Chronicles or Kings. We're talking about these records. And then we find out that both verse 18 of 2 Kings and verse 20 of Chronicles, which we'll stay in, says this. 
So Manasseh slept with his fathers, means he died, and they buried him in his own house. And Amon, his son, became king in his place. Now, slept with his fathers means he died, and then, of course, they buried him. But what we usually look for in, in the ending here is, did, did they bury him with the other kings? If they buried him with the other kings, he was held up in honor. Hezekiah, his father, was buried with the kings. Now, they are buried with their fathers, but the, the kings are their fathers in some sense. Um, but here, doesn't say anything in either in kings or here that he was buried with the other kings. He was buried in his own house. Now, what kings does say, it was he was buried in a garden, the garden of Uzzah. So it's pretty safe to say that he was not buried with the kings, and it was probably because of the first half of his life. And in the first half of his life was very evil. And that's where God says in the book of Jeremiah, I am bringing you into captivity because of the sins of Manasseh. He was the last straw, the big straw that broke the camel's back that brought this chastisement upon Judah. All right, so... We'll take a look at Ammon when we return. But a couple of applications here. And I want to talk about repentance. The first thing I want to say is sometimes repentance takes drastic measures. Sometimes. Now, I believe, I believe repentance comes from the, the Lord, the Holy Spirit working in our lives, causes us to recognize that we've sinned and there's a change. But also, too, we often see life events come into some people that they resist, they rebel, they reject, they reject until the, these very drastic measures. And that's what we see with Manasseh. And by the way, I don't think we should, should lessen the impact of that. I mean, so what? Whatever it takes to bring someone to repentance. And you know, sometimes when we pray for people, people come to Christ, we do say, you know, Lord, whatever it takes. And we mean that. Whatever it takes to bring them to Christ and save their soul. Well, sometimes drastic measures are the only thing that will get to the people's attention. And sometimes they can even have knowledge of impending doom, impending consequences and chastisement. Manasseh did, but twice it says that he paid no attention. And guess what? Being the leader, the spiritual leader, not a good spiritual leader, the people didn't pay attention either. But God brought chastisement upon him. But it wasn't until he experienced the chastisement that that brought out the repentance. And of course, we, we think, well, maybe it wasn't true repentance. Well, I think it was because of his actions. We see the fruit. So we, we want to just say in the, the course of life, when we see these kinds of things, the truth of the matter is the bottom line is no matter how or when or what consequences, repentance is always good and always right. That's what is needed. And let's keep that thought and let's look at the next point, repentance and real fruit. And this is what we want to talk about. So 
repentance, true repentance is often discerned by a person's actions. So if a person says they're sorry, supposedly repents, but keeps doing the same thing over and over and over, it could be a struggling believer. I get it. You know, besetting sin. And we do struggle. And it seems like each believer has his own things that he struggles with more than others, what they struggle with. But there should be victory. Some point, right? There should be some getting over this because if you really are going to repent, you're going to change. And if you go to the New Testament, the word for repent means a change of mind. Well, you might say, well, if it's a change of mind, he changed his mind, but he's still doing the same actions. No, it's a change of mind that leads to a change of actions. Now, there is, in a sense, I think repentance is two-pronged. One is for salvation, and the other is for a believer. How does that work? Well, for salvation, repentance is a change of mind, first and foremost. I changed my mind that I'm a sinner now, when I didn't think I was a sinner. I changed my mind about how to get saved. I did believe that I was going to be good enough to get into heaven. I've changed my mind. The Holy Spirit has changed my mind, brought repentance, and I see now it's only through Christ. I see that I'm not the one who can save myself, but Christ. I changed my mind about Christ, and I received Christ. Uh, you could say uh, you might have known all those things, but you just never trusted Christ. Well, repentance is a change of mind that you trust Christ. And so you would even see there that it's a change of mind that leads to a change of action. Now, in a believer's life, I believe there is still such a thing as repentance because it means a change of mind. And so if a believer is sinning, and truth of the matter is we all sin, and we sin way more than we'd like to uh, admit or way more than we'd like, but we sin. We still struggle with that sin nature. We, we do need to repent of that sin. We need to confess that sin, but we need to stop sinning, repent from it, and do what is right. Again, it's a change of mind. This is wrong. God says it's wrong. I don't care what anybody else thinks. I don't care if, if I have, uh, you know, feelings for this type of thing or feelings for this other person that it says that I should not be unequally yoked or, or whatever. So you change your mindset. That those things don't matter. What matters is what God says, and then it should lead to a change of behavior. We, we definitely see that. And again, Charles Ryrie said, if it's true, a true root, there's going to be true fruit. If there's no fruit at all, then you question whether there's a root. Now, what about the in-between? That's the dilemma, isn't it? Well, I appreciate Charles Ryrie who says, you know, there's just got to be some. There's got to be some, you know. You can't be too hard-line. Some people grow at different rates. So uh, there's just got to be some fruit. There's got to be something you can hang your hat on. But if there's none, then there needs to be uh, introspection. By the way, when we think about this, again, you remember the Apostle Paul. Um, we would say there's true repentance in his life, and he was the foremost of sinners, here we have the foremost of the sinners of the kings of Judah, and he repents. But about Paul, 
It says it's a trustworthy statement deserving full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners among whom I am the foremost of all. Yet for this reason I found mercy so that in me as the foremost Jesus Christ might demonstrate his perfect patience as an example for those who would believe in him for eternal life. So that's repentance and real fruit. Well, the third point, though, is really one that this passage causes us to have to reflect. There is repentance, but in some cases there still is chastisement. So just because there's repentance, it depends on the sin, it depends on how vast the sin, how serious the sin, how many people it affected, the consequences may linger on. They may at times be lessened, and they may at, at times not be lessened. So Manasseh teaches us that even though we may receive mercy from the Lord, sometimes consequences of chastisement may remain. Now, not always, and we serve a great God, but, but you can imagine if there's so much, you know, muddy water under the bridge that it's just irreversible, there are times that chastisement will continue. I, I do think, though, in many cases, the Lord perhaps lessens it, uh, what it could be. But it, it, there's a sense in which a true repentive person, believer, or even unbeliever, it doesn't matter. I'm forgiven now, and I'm going to live for the Lord. And we do see people who are taken into prison, and their lives really are converted. And they, they come out, and all the trials of of having been in prison and then that testimony, you know, there's a sense in which, yeah, it's tough, but I'm forgiven. I've come to Christ. And, you know, at times, again, there's that, well, are they truly repentant? Well, look at their fruits. Another thing that Manasseh teaches, and this will be the last thing, is that even though we may, we may receive mercy from the Lord, sometimes the consequences of our sin may continue to affect others. The people still worshiped in the high places. Even if it was worshiping the Lord, it was still wrong. That effect of sin was still affecting them. Now, you know, in our day and age, and we think about it, I think about it as a pastor, and sometimes, you know, people will come and pour their hearts out to me that, you know, they weren't Christians all their lives, and now they're Christians, and they... And they didn't necessarily raise their kids as Christians. Um, it's still hopeful. That's, that's the message that I give them. It's still hopeful. You just remain faithful. You worry about your relationship with the Lord. Keep praying for them. Look for opportunities. But you just remain faithful. And at some point, I believe the Lord will use that testimony. I think that's what he eventually did with Manasseh. I think of that, uh, Manasseh finally said, you know what? I saw my dad pray, and I saw the Lord answer and give him 15 years on his life. So we learn repentance sometimes comes about through drastic measures. True repentance is from real fruit. And sometimes, in very harsh cases, there may be repentance, but there still may be chastisement. So the moral of the story is, don't disobey. The moral of the story is, if you do sin, confess it immediately. Repent immediately. 
so that you don't have to go down that road. And of course, we even talked about church discipline in 1 Timothy this last week. All right, so let's close in a word of prayer. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the lessons that we have learned here, even from Manasseh. And Father, there is a part of us that, that we rejoice in that as, as, as evil as he was, he did turn around and did serve you. Father, we love all those who serve you. Father, no matter what background they come from or what sin, because we're sinners as well. You've forgiven us as sinners. Help us to serve you, Lord. Help us to be careful to confess our sin. Help us to repent immediately, Lord. And help us to minister to others to do the same. And we'll thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. All right.